when minimum protein levels are met, more protein is no longer the most metabolic or anabolic macronutrient we can eat. What is the most metabolic and anabolic macronutrient? Carbohydrates. In this almost no fat kind of diet comparison, where you're studying just protein to carbs, it's like, wow, it really works. Like even in a freaking fruit fly. All right, guys. So a quick explanation. Uh, this particular series, the science of diet efficacy, ties in a lot of things we talked about over the last couple of years, trying to come up with a, a central answer with maybe more tentacles than we've had in the past as to what is the best way to diet, knowing that there's going to be some preferential, um, just, just preference, just preference in, in, in what people like. And some people even genetically may feel like they do better with some things than others, but there are definitely some clear cut answers as to what happens when we diet. So when I talk about diet efficacy, it's here's how much effort I'm putting into this. Here's what it's costing me in, in all kinds of ways in terms of hunger and sacrifice and so forth, maybe even lean body mass, metabolic capacity. What am I getting for it? So today we're taking a turn into macronutrients. And the reason I said uh, I'm not as excited about this particular study as I am others is I got lured in because of what I thought it was going to really be delving into. And by the time I saw everything, it wasn't quite as applicable, um, or I should say revealing as I thought it would be. But there are still some really cool things here. So last week, I spent some time going over what anybody interpreting or reading or reviewing research should be looking for a lot of those components. And this is another really unique one in that this is a doctoral dissertation, somebody getting a, a doctorate in some kind of nutrition science through a, a you know, department of biology at University of Queensland. And so uh, Hugh here, who I'm sure, you know, this past, this has been published in different parts of, in chapters of this have been published in different places. Um, so I, I, I think there was, there's a couple things he did here that was really, really unique. And, and that's what I want to really hone in on. So uh, metabolic responses to suboptimal macronutrient ratios in Drosophila melanogaster, which is a fruit fly. And the, the reason why a lot of research is done with, with specific lab subjects are because of the correlations they have to our human physiology. So for example, you know, lab rats. Rats have almost, I think almost 94% the exact same DNA as we do. Uh, pigs and so forth, their organ structures are so significant that we're doing heart transplants with, with some pig organs. And when you get to the fruit fly, ironically, they're still so close enough to us that a lot applies, but you get the advantage of all these generations. They only live for two to four weeks or so, sometimes less. And so you can look at entire lifespan in that much, uh, you know, lab time with hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of subjects. And I'm going to show you some stuff that's it's really kind of cool. But uh, so, so just understand, we're looking at metabolic responses to, as Hugh described it here, suboptimal macronutrient ranges. What he really did 
was compared two different types of macronutrient distributions, looking at pretty much a, a high carb and a low carb, high protein, low protein distribution. So um, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of reading here, especially at the beginning, just so you see what he was looking for, because there were there were three distinct areas of study he was doing. And this being a doctoral dissertation, it ended up being a 150 page document. So a, a lot went into this, a lot of narrative. So despite the enormous focus on diet and health in human society, what truly constitutes the ideal diet for human health and longevity remains an area of intense inquiry and debate both in scientific literature and society as a whole. Mm, debatable, <laughs> right off the bat, I'm gonna say, I mean, there are a lot of answers. A lot of people come into this saying, nobody knows anything, it's all up in the air. And that's not entirely true if you know enough of the research has been done. Within the field of human nutrition, evidence is conflicting and opinions are divided, true. For such an important question with obvious relevance to the quality of human lives, the dearth of solid answers is striking. The obesity epidemic that plagues more affluent countries and prevalence of fatal diseases with strong links to diet serves as a stark reminder that humans often do a poor job of feeding themselves an optimal diet. So he's going in, and this is why this is important. Even in just a normal study, something that's very experimental, um, you know, knowing who is doing it, why they're doing it, who they represent, where the money is coming from, the funding, like everything kind of matters. So a, a cool thing about a doctoral dissertation is probably not a lot of weird, um, not biases, but, but ambitions behind it. It's not like you're doing this for an industry or a company that's paying you and kind of wink, wink, hoping for a certain outcome. This is just a student who's got a strong interest in this and is trying to figure it out. So there's some idealism there that I like. Um, he goes on, within the comparative literature, there's a growing body of evidence demonstrating the influence of dietary macronutrient ratios. So lo and behold, people are interested in the fact that you can have different ratios of macronutrients and get different results. Uh, and they're looking at these in things like lifespan reproduction, rather than the traditional focus of intake of energy or specific detrimental nutrients, it has become apparent that the intake ratios between major macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fat, have a strong influence on longevity and even fecundity of an animal. That's their proclivity to procreate, which was an interesting aside for uh, using fruit flies and there is even some physiological carryover there that I, that I think does become interesting. I'll, I'll point that out. What has consistently been observed um, is that across a range of macronutrient ratios, lifespan and reproduction are maximized at different points along the spectrum, such that maximizing one trades off the other. Now, one of the things that he noted at some point that I'm just going to kind of bring up because it's, it's interesting is that you can do studies with um, like, like single sex fruit flies. So like here's an entire area, you know, container of just females versus males. So they're not going through mate attraction. They're not mating They're you know, that kind of thing. They're just kind of hanging out. Um, you can also do again. I mean, the, the lifespan is so short. Um, you can do them, you know, after they've had offspring versus not, and there can be some physiological differences and even behavioral differences 
uh, he gets into that when one of the things he, he does address is activity. Um, but uh, th this is something, this is, this is a slide I want to just kind of mention, and then we'll, we'll move off of this because it's just a really cool side point. Uh, unsurprisingly, animals seek out diets that maximize their lifetime facundity, as this is an evolutionary, evolutionary, evolutionarily advantageous. If human also select diets that maximize facundity to the detriment of longevity, then the maximization of health span may require us to ignore our consumptive instincts. And what that means is sometimes for, for, for fruit flies to be more fertile or, or better uh, for their offspring, they will often eat things and eat in ways that are not good for them personally. So for the sake of fertility, they're giving up some of their own lifespan. And he makes the point that some of those evolutionary instincts are in us. And, and it's, it's, it's an interesting theory that is, it, it's proven, it's not just probable that, you know, evolution drives us to do certain things, to behave in certain ways, such as because of food scarcity. And this, this can be seen in even one generation with a mother who's overweight or a mother who's starving and how that completely changes the genetics of a child. I mean, not just, I mean, literally down to their behavior, you can transpose some of those, those instincts and behaviors because of what you went through to your offspring. And so th think of the fact that, you know, for millennia, we have been hunters and gatherers and not always being able to eat even every day or eat enough. And so we do have the ability and the hardware neurally to, to binge, to, you know, eat when you can, feast or famine. And that obviously is counter to our own health, to overeat. And so he, he just noted that this was something they were going to be looking at and something that has been seen in fruit flies is that they too will eat in ways that increase their chance to, to provide good offspring and yet to their own detriment, like they, they die sooner because of that. So anyway, let's move on to some, some other things. Uh, the following body of work seeks to deepen our understanding of the physiological, behavioral, and lifespan changes and consequences that are associated with the consumption of suboptimal dietary uh, macronutrient ratios. And he's going to, I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit. I show that low carbohydrate diets are associated with metabolic depression, which may be a mechanism to conserve glycogen and explain the failure of low carbohydrate diets to promote long-term weight loss in human studies. I also demonstrate that this metabolic plasticity may be crucial maintaining locomotor capacity despite limited energy stores. Finally, I assess the effect of a range of dietary macronutrient ratios and energy densities as a whole organism, metabolic rate, respiratory exchange ratio, mitochondrial efficiency, and ROS, which is reactive oxygen species or free radicals production to explore whether an efficiency oxidative damage trade-off hypothesis may explain the lifespan altering effects of macronutrient intake. So this is a, this is a, an ambitious doctoral dissertation. I mean, you're looking at a lot. It's almost like he's saying in my dissertation, I'm going to create the unifying theory of everything in diets, which is 
what I want this research review series to kind of surround and, and probe as many areas as we can. But he is looking at everything and, and they're really, you know, do come about some, some interesting points because of his use of the fruit flies. So what is the ideal human diet? Despite our many advances in understanding human physiology, optimal human nutrition remains an area of intense research focus with no clear scientific consensus. As such, debate on this topic is equally, if not more intense within the general populace, providing a fertile commercial market for competing dietary approaches. Public health nutrition, the endeavor of advising the general public on healthy eating habits has been advising since the mid 1800s and continues to evolve today. So some of this is what you would expect in an academic paper. Somebody saying, this is why my topic matters. When you do something academically like this, you're, you, you, you're advised to, probably kind of mandated to contribute something that is necessary. You know, find some gaps in the literature, something that hasn't been answered conclusively, and, and let's, let's keep building this puzzle together. Don't just go replicate somebody else's research. So he is basically saying that, you know, nobody knows what to do and I'm going to come solve everything or at least try to contribute to it. I think, you know, if, if I were on his dissertation committee, I, I would probably have advised him to be, you know, more narrow because this is pretty broad in scope, as I said, and then you wouldn't have to make quite as broad, um, objectionable statements like this, that nobody knows what to do. It's all up in the air. It's all open for debate, which is just completely not true. So the rising prevalence of obesity has been dramatic enough that the World Health Organization labels it an epidemic starting in 2000. Body mass index is calculated, blah, blah, blah. So again, he's just, he's just kind of setting up the need for this research. And I wanted to point some of that out to you just to follow up on last week's session or two weeks ago. So here's what I mentioned a little bit earlier that adds a little philosophical spin to this. The thrifty gene hypothesis is an early attempt to explain obesity in humans that gained widespread acceptance. This hypothesis states that a propensity for energy storage evolved in human ancestors because increasing fat stores when food availability is high is advantageous as it will increase survival in times of famine. Thus, in the presence of perpetual excess food, as is the norm of modern Western society, this hypothesis predicts that obesity will result. Although this explanation is intuitive from an evolutionary perspective, several lines of evidence suggest that alone, and this is a key statement, it is not sufficient to explain the rise in the prevalence of human obesity. And he's going to point out where we do have some choice. Studies on small mammals have shown that body mass is tightly regulated with changes in consumption and or activity, compensating for interventions that increase available calories. And, and I will say, I, I think one of his main points of interest in this dissertation is, is this right here. Um, you guys will hopefully remember some of the research reviews we've done that I have built the case that energy expenditure is more times the best place to create more favorable body composition change. And especially because as he said here, studies on small mammals have shown that body mass is tightly regulated with changes in consumption. Your hypothalamus starts to adjust. Um, you know, other dietary hormones, insulin and glucagon are there for that balance, ghrelin, 
uh, you know, those kind of things are there for that, where, where you're, you're regulating what's literally happening in your body. So your brain isn't just mindlessly looking for food. You can, you can dampen hunger cues. We also know through energy expenditure studies, I think, I think you can say it's just incontrovertible that your body instantly with body comp changes, I'm sorry, with diet changes, starts changing activity, just like the thermic effect of food. What happens when you eat a lot of food? You're getting all hot and sweaty. What's happening? Your metabolism is revving up. That's the positive thermic effect of food. When the other is happening and you, your food intake is going down, your NEAT drops significantly, even without your knowing it, you just start moving less. So he makes this great point that alone, just having access to food isn't the whole story. So that's part of what he's looking for in this. And, and I think it's one of his strongest points. Uh, so the protein leverage hypothesis is based on observations that appetite appears to be primarily regulated in many animals by the need to hit a protein target. Meals of lower protein percentage will result in larger portions being consumed. Conversely, meals of higher protein percentage result in smaller portions being consumed. The pattern of food consumption has been demonstrated under controlled conditions in mice where food choice is limited to meals of defined protein and carbs and in wild spider monkeys where foraging choices lead to consistent daily protein intake, but considerable variation in total daily energy intake. Humans also uh, eat to a protein target under both controlled conditions or higher protein content led uh, to, or lead to reduced total calorie intake. There, there are so many studies that show that, that when you consume a certain amount of protein up to what is considered a minimum threshold, then just ad libitum daily energy consumption really does go down. So again, another one of those things that, that is self-regulated by biology. So we're going to get to his, his methodology here in a second, but um, one more point. First, anthropological evidence of modern hunter-gatherer societies, archaeological evidence and estimations of historically available food sources suggest that our ancestors dieted consistently on approximately 37% protein, pretty specific for being approximate, 41% carbs, 22% fat. Comparing this to the average US diet, which is 15% protein, 52% carb, and 33% fat. Our physiology may be optimized for considerably higher protein intake than is regularly consumed by the average person. So this, this, is, this is really a big point. I want you to kind of look at those numbers for a second, that if you look at the, the longest, closest range of food before you know, the modern industrial, uh, you know, kind of age was 37% ish protein, 41% carb, 22% fat. That's, that's pretty paleo, right? Except that paleo is sometimes perverted into keto, but you don't find a lot of fat in nature if you're foraging, but you're finding, you know, fruit, veggies and, and game. So, so protein and carbs. So that's one of the reasons why he wanted to do, this is not a low carb versus low fat kind of study. He's not, he's not comparing carbs to keto. He's really trying to look at, you know, that, that control of protein versus carb. And it definitely it's a nod to the low carb crowd 
but without putting it into just a keto comparison. So lastly, we have no storage form for protein, which is not quite true. We do have blood amino acids. We have the liver amino acid pool. We have muscle tissue. But to his point, it's not as readily available for energy like glycogen or, or adipose tissue. So uh, no storage form for protein. So it makes sense that we would evolve to hit a daily or even meal by meal protein target. There are a couple of things I do want to point out here that I see as kind of a student that may not have the broadest experience that he may have in 10 or 20 or 30 years, uh, because he makes some statements that I won't say are just definitively wrong, but they kind of border on that. And so I was just talking to, matter of fact, Andrew Hughes, um, that, you know, this being a doctoral dissertation, you never know unless you're part of that process, how heavy handed his dissertation committee was. Are they really studying what he's doing line by line and reviewing and saying, oh man, this is wrong, change this, let's go back. Like how many times do you have to send your stuff back through the dissertation committee versus like they just see, okay, it looks pretty good, stamp, you're done. So there are just some things here that I, I'm gonna tell you guys that I don't agree with completely, but not that that's a, a total hit on, on this person as a scientist or maybe now researcher. Um, so uh, conversely, glycogen stores and adipose tissue buffer against, or buffer organisms against fluctuations in available dietary carbohydrate and fat. Thus, intake of these macronutrients should be less tightly regulated. These considerations suggest that a natural diet for humans is likely to both be higher in protein and lower in carbohydrate than the modern diet. The obesity ed epidemic could therefore be in part due to the insufficient protein content of modern meals driving overconsumption of energy, leading to body mass gain. By the end of this 150 page dissertation, with the data he collects, I think he should have come back up here and changed this. Like to me, this is him saying my expectation in investigating this would be, hey, we evolved with more protein, therefore more protein is good. And instead in his introduction, he's setting it up as a dogmatic truth. And then his data is going to completely go against this. So I'm pointing that out now in case I forget to later, but I want you to see how the data, the actual results contradict the statement uh, that, that we need more protein, that the answer would be that we all go up to 37% or higher protein as if being a hunter gatherer, all you've got is your, your rocks and your sticks and you got to go catch squirrels all day. And, you know, that's how we should all be living today is, you know, animal meat, animal meat, animal meat. Um, so let's get into some of the, uh, the methods, but first his, his final, uh, exact premise, while this might seem intuitive on the surface, we must consider that outcomes are favored by natural selection versus our goals as humans for our own health and well-being. natural selection favors lifetime reproductive success. And the diet, which maximizes lifetime reproductive success is not necessarily the diet that maximizes lifespan and health span. Something I said in the beginning, numerous comparative studies have shown that across a range of macronutrient ratios, there's often a trade-off between these two traits that are maximized at different macronutrient ratios. 
So us being more fertile, having more offspring versus doing what's healthy for me as, a, as an individual. Uh, such a pattern has been demonstrated in fruit flies, mealworm beetles, crickets, and mice. Importantly, it has also been demonstrated when given a choice to regulate their macronutrients, uh, which, which is a good part of this study. So one thing that's interesting here with these fruit flies is it was not, it, it was controlled in that they had a certain macronutrient distribution per study group, but they could eat whatever they want. So it was an ad libitum study, which gives it an extra dimension of seeing what these different food combinations do to appetite and therefore perhaps body composition. And, and again, pros and cons to every type of research, but this to me is more in the wild research, which we humans live in the wild um, without constraints. You know, I can eat whatever I want. I can buy whatever I want at the grocery store and the drive through. So what choices am I going to make based on the decisions I'm already making? How does, how do my food choices drive my next food choices? So, um, the, the nutrient seeking behavior we should expect natural selection to favor is for our offspring, for having more offspring, not for our own natural health. So again, you know, he's got two or three different tracks of things. I think he's looking at but one, one strong one is looking at real activity, high carb diet versus low carb diet. What kind of activity levels does that give us? Because we know that, as he described, is a big driving factor. We regulate for those things. And so we want a diet that helps us increase activity and just, you know, health, health building behaviors. But then also this, this weird thing about how cross evolutionary it is that we sometimes feel instinctually driven to eat foods that are actually bad for us just because they're hyper palatable. They give us more energy density. So we're kind of drawn to those instead of what's truly good for us. Okay. Now this is another one of those things where I have to say, you know, screech the brakes here for a second because, you know, it may not be the most well put together study. The longest living group of humans are the older generation of Okinawans. And this long-lived cohort consumes a traditional diet of just 9% of total calories from protein, 85% carbs, and six from fat. So uh, what gives there? Hugh just told us that more protein is better because the good old days, paleo man did that. So therefore we should. But when you look at this in real study today, uh, an actual lower protein, lower fat diet seems to give us better longevity. So this will come back toward the end as we kind of come back, uh, on some of the results. Um, so let me, uh, we've already covered some of that. Let's get into some of what he did. So studying studies, examining the acute effects of altered macronutrient ratios of humans are common, which it's kind of new. I mean, that's, you know, maybe for him at his age, uh, he's seeing a lot of them, but uh, they generally narrow in scope due to the logistical limitations of working with humans. This is where fruit flies come in handy. Short-term studies on the effect of diet and body mass management, sports performance, metabolic rate, blah, blah, blah. Uh, in contrast, comparative studies examining a broader, the broader effects of macronutrients on lifespan and reproductive output are rapidly growing, but a concerted effort to understand the underlying mechanisms are still relatively recent. Therefore, fruit flies. 
Um, despite the evolutionary divide between insects and mammals, the mechanism of carbohydrate and lipid metabolism are highly conserved and high sugar diets have been shown to produce obese diabetic flies. So, you know, we've kind of proven uh, a similar parallel. The first comprehensive studies demonstrating the effects of dietary macronutrients ratios on lifespan were done on flies and efforts to understand the mechanisms behind these patterns have mainly focused on the species. Subsequently, it has been shown that the effects of protein restriction on lifespan are likely not from protein per se, but rather some amino acids. So there's a quality issue when it comes to protein intake. Uh, fruit flies are proving to be an invaluable system to study these mechanisms and such studies may eventually lead to human diets tailored for lifespan extension, blah, blah, blah. Again, he's just trying to explain why his, his study was meaningful and please, dissertation chairman passed me and give me my diploma. So the, uh, the goal of the research, Kevin knows that, that's what students play to all the time. Just let me get out of here. The goal of the research presented in this thesis was to utilize the power of an animal model, fruit flies, to address questions in the field of nutritional physiology that are of interest from a human-centric perspective, but also provide more general understanding of metabolic and nutritional physiology, specifically the experiments reported within the probe and underlying physiological responses associated with changes in the ratio of carbs and protein. Like I said, not gonna really focus on fat here. Okay, so now I'm gonna, I'll be talking through some of this and admittedly, I'm not gonna go through the results with a super fine tooth comb because it's 150 pages um, and uh, Kevin's already throwing shade at Hugh here. Um, there are actually a lot of citations in this. I, I left those out, but um, if, if you look at the actual kind of equipment you have to use for fruit fly studies, it's pretty crazy. Like they are literally testing expired gases and lean body mass. Imagine doing lean body mass tests on a fruit fly. Um, it's crazy, like the level of detail in some of the scatter plots and so forth in this. So this is where I would bow to Hugh and say, holy shit, you did a really good job of trying to put together a study like this with fruit flies. Um, so there, there are some really, really, really strong advantages, but it also does leave the door open to people saying, well, how much error is built into that kind of study? And, and that's admitted often. You know, I'm not giving you a, a true look at, at, at a 150 page dissertation here, uh, just trying to pick out some of the high points for our use. So he did this in three categories, three different experiments. The first experimental chapter tested the hypothesis that Long-term adherence to high-protein, low-carbohydrate diets may lead to a reduction in physical activity that could explain why low-carb diets, while initially effective for, for body mass loss, fat loss, prove ineffective over time. So I like this bias he has because it matches up with good long-term inpatient studies that low-carb diets can be effective initially. You see fat loss but then they prove ineffective over time. So he's going in with that mindset. Uh, I measured metabolic rate, glycogen levels. Again, you're measuring glycogen levels in a fruit fly. Consumption and walking activity in flies, their flight patterns and so forth on standard. Uh, uh, he, he called a standard diet for a fruit fly, like 75% carb, 25% protein. Then the low carb antithesis of that was 
75% protein, 25% carb. So the second experiment uh, built directly upon this, uh, upon the first by examining the effect of high protein, low carb diet on flight activity and glycogen depletion rates to further test the initial hypothesis and examine how changes in metabolic rate affect depletion of energy stores. So he was really, really focused on glycogen levels. And, and there are a couple cool charts that show, because you're looking at the full lifespan of a fly, um, how this changed over time. So together, these first two chapters demonstrate the value of incorporating assessments of plasticity into studies. So what happened to their physiology to make up for these pretty big changes? Uh, you know, do we have the ability to quote survive something that, you know, like, like say our diets had to change because of environmental circumstances? You know, we don't all just die all of a sudden because we're not getting enough fat or carbs or protein. So there's, there has to be some level of biological plasticity and addressing questions that arise from numerous studies on humans that have never been adequately experimented, experimentally addressed due to limits of that system. Again, fewer amounts of uh, subjects, uh, shorter studies. My PhD program began uh, with more of an echophysiological focus studying the invasive can toad before moving to a study system more appropriate for addressing the questions raised above. The paper presented in Appendix 1 is the outcome of this work. The study demonstrates the importance of measuring respiratory exchange ratios and, of, and to avoid underestimates of metabolic rate and estimate changes in substrate metabolism. So another thing that I think is a really good point to, to what he said here is he used multiple ways to measure metabolism whereas a lot of studies may just use one, you know, here's what we do, a VO2 max test or this or that. So, so he was incorporating a couple of different things he has learned, as he said, through his, his PhD program. Okay, so this is the actual methodology. I mentioned flies were fed on one of two diets, a standard diet containing protein to carb ratio of one to four, and then a low carb diet, which was, oh, it's actually one to one, not four not four to one, the opposite. So more 50-50. So the low carb diet, um, you know, keep that in mind was 50% protein. The ratio was, was based on the study, blah, blah, blah. Um, oh, so, so that get, oh, that, that was where I got that. So given a choice, they prefer that one to four, 75% carbs. So that's where that came from. Uh, and I'm not going to read you all of this. I just wanted to give you a look at like how crazy this can get. 114 different tubes in each rack, 57 for each uh, you know, experiment, contained 50, er, uh, 912 tubes overall with 880 individually housed flies, blah, blah, blah. Um, when you look, this is something we've looked at before. The total number of flies housed for the five runs was 4,400. Total measured for metabolic rate activity was 720, 40 per treatment day. So they were selecting out like just a random amount to do these tests. Um, so just it's a huge amount of data points. So you're getting a really good clean average. Another thing, as you can see, I made this look uh, unreadable because I just want to show you how much they were looking at. They were looking at actual food consumption, given these two different types of diets, how much did they eat? What were their glycogen levels with those two different types of diets? Let's look at all the, the, the stats. Let's measure metabolic rates. Let's look at body mass changes, activity, 
Um, you know, again, food consumption on the next experiment and glycogen stores and the data, you know, all that stuff. So very, very, very thorough, ambitious study. Okay, so now here's where we're going to get to the bottom line of some stuff. And, and I want to connect some dots that I think will at least give us something mean, meaningful. So the, the first one is metabolic rate and the uh, more shaded um, lines there on the, the plot chart is the low carb. And so you can see that over time through the, the course of this lifespan, a low carb diet, their metabolic rate didn't drop that far, but still the standard diet with more of an equal amount of protein and, and carbs, you've, you've got twice as much carbohydrate, metabolic rate didn't really even decline. It actually kind of accelerated a little bit um, for some reason, possibly because the diet they prefer was that one to four ratio. And that was more of a 50, 50, but then you look over there at body mass. This was an interesting point that was really talked about in the study narrative with the low carb diet, look at lean body mass, how much it shoots up or body mass in general. And that's because you're, these, these species are not used to that much protein. And what does protein do for us? I mean, it allows us to, to grow new tissue, to, to replicate cells and so forth. So you initially see even on a low carb diet that there is this acute surge of lean body mass gain. But then look what happens by the end of the lifespan. It comes back down and look at the standard diets. Look where it, it ends up much, much higher. So with 75% of food coming from carbohydrates, because 25% coming from protein is still not low. That is not a low protein diet. 25% of calories is more than any species really needs. And this was part of his first look where he's like, wow, I kind of didn't expect that. Uh, you just kind of think, you know, protein, 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 er, bench press, squat, lean body mass, more proteins, always going to give you more muscle. And in fact, it does not, because as you've heard me say a gazillion times, when minimum protein levels are met, more protein is no longer the most metabolic or anabolic macronutrient we can eat. Once minimum protein levels are met, what is the most metabolic and anabolic macronutrient? Carbohydrates. So in this almost no fat kind of diet comparison, where you're studying just protein to carbs, it's like, wow, it really works. Like even in a freaking fruit fly, matter of fact, what was it? 84 or 440,000 fruit flies over the course of an entire lifespan. So that's, that's of note, I think. So this one is the, um, the metabolic rate adjusted. And um, I'm probably not going to articulate this as well as I should, but it, it was adjusted to activity. So metabolic rate adjusted to activity. Um, and, and you look at the, uh, the low carb, and again, it just kind of starts to decline, 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 decline. So metabolic capacity, metabolic output, metabolic energy favors carbs, which is kind of a dumb moment. But again, so many people today still don't believe that. Um, and then over in the... Um, uh, metabolic adjusted to 1.2. So, so just even at that higher level. So you're just, you're just seeing 
no matter how you study this at the, the base level or adjusted to different levels of activity, carbs are your friend if you want to keep moving. Or I should say, that's not, that's not, that's going to come up in a second, but keep your metabolic rate higher. You're going to have a stronger metabolism with carbs once minimum protein is met. So this is activity. And this is one of the things that, that um, because it was pretty even, it didn't show any change. This is where that concept of plasticity came in because this was one point where he had to say, wow, we, we didn't expect that. We kind of expected the other. When you look at those lean body mass changes, which benefits in the long term, a higher carb, lower protein diet, and you look at metabolic capacity, again, favoring higher carb, moderate protein diet, um, you would think that activity, and now we're getting into like non-exercise non activity, because obviously they're not doing exercise-induced things with fruit flies. I guess they could, maybe, kind of like rats on a treadmill. Maybe you put them in like a vacuum tunnel where you make fruit flies fly against the wind. But, but what they found is just by having a calorie deficits, or, or I should, shouldn't even say that this was ad libitum, but just, just, just whatever, whatever levels of food they chose to eat, they self-regulated and they truly did expect that the higher carb diet would make them like super energetic. Like, Hey, let's go. We're full of carbs. Let's, let's go lift bro. And what they found is they just do what fruit flies do. You know, if you're, if you have a lower carb diet and, and, and yet you, you've got that excess protein, you're converting protein into glucose, gluconeogenesis. And so you still just kind of stayed in your normal pattern of activity. They didn't have necessarily the impetus to create new activity. And this is where he brought up the conclusion or, or at least kind of the hypothesis. We specifically chose virgin unmated like infant fruit flies and then we separated them because we didn't want all of that hanky panky going on in the test tubes and you know marring up our stuff and so they really i mean that was kind of a limitation as well because now they they just measured non-sexual habits whereas if you had sexual selection and, and mating selection happening, then maybe there would have been differences in activity based on like how much energy you had based on carbohydrate. I mean, working with bodybuilders and people who go on very low calorie diets, I hear a lot about low libido and that kind of thing when body fat gets low and energy intake is low. So that was an interesting thing that they found and he correlated it back because just no change in activity based on low carb or standard diet on the fact that we just had, you know, you know, female fruit flies with female fruit flies and male with male and that kind of thing. And so that, that kind of took it out of a purely natural situation. So it didn't, didn't, you know, bastardize a study anyway. It's not like you say, Oh crap. Now that didn't make it a valid study. It's just that we, we have to know that that was very specific and that that could have been, a, uh, a factor. So now here was the consumption, which uh, was also something that was super interesting because you're, you're allowing them to eat whatever they want. You know, here's the, the food bowl, so to speak, and you can eat whatever you want. And the, the, you would think the lower carb, 
higher protein because remember like protein bro it's, it's staves off your appetite you're fuller longer like you'll eat less if you just have more protein well look what happened i mean to a large margin the standard diet fruit flies ate less why you guys know this because no matter how much volumetric work you're doing in your gi system how much protein and fiber you stuff in your gut your hypothalamus is working on things like blood sugar cues. And so if you eat enough carbohydrate, then biochemically you get better hormonal signaling for satiety, just giving you the cues to not be as hungry. Whereas if you're on a low carb diet, you are always hungry. I mean, no matter how many chicken breasts your keto coach says you can have, or your low carb coach says you can have, you are still going to suffer through, through a lot more hunger. So another, another really good point. And in the beginning of, of our session today, I mentioned, you're going to learn a lot of things that you already know. A lot of things are going to be confirmed because you've been exposed to some good research. Um, but it's really cool to see it confirmed in fruit flies. I mean, we talk a lot about inpatient versus self-report studies, whether something is double blind placebo controlled or, or whatnot. When you're dealing with humans, there's a lot of pros, but there are some of those cons where you just can't observe a completely natural, unconscious kind of response as you would with, with a lab species like this. So glycogen, again, I'm, I'm just interested. How do you measure glycogen in fruit flies? They did go over it. It's, it's not like they're literally doing like biopsies and so forth. <clears throat> They have ways of looking at excrement and respired gases and so forth and make formulaic uh, determinations. But this is where I just have to say, okay, I don't do this kind of research. So I'm going to have to take them at face value when they say you can be accurate with this. Um, but it doesn't say anything here that you would not expect. The glycogen levels for a low carb diet, <clears throat> of course, on day one, of a low carb diet, your glycogen levels are gonna bottom out quickly. You're using a lot of that stored glycogen, but then look at the standard diet over time, down, 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 down. You eventually get there. It just takes some time and that's usually more comfortable. It's more metabolic capacity sparing, as you saw. <clears throat> it's, it's lean body mass sparing, as you saw. <clears throat> so again, nothing that you would, you would see is out of the ordinary, but just interesting to see the fruit flies. So I think there's one other kind of chart that I want to show you, but just to go through some of this discussion on this, this first section, and then we'll, we'll kind of breeze through the rest. Primary goal of the study was a test with correlation between the level of glycogen stores an animal has and their propensity to expand energy through voluntary physical activity. It was predicted that in the adult uh, fruit flies, a diet low in carbs and high in protein would result in reduced glycogen stores, which it would, and, and thus then have a reduction in physical activity. However, when glycogen stores were lowered by the low carb diet, there was really no difference in activity levels. And the proposed link between glycogen stores and physical activity was hypothesized based on the data which suggests humans on a low carb diet for weight loss purposes initially experienced superior results. But then in the long run, there is no advantage. Matter of fact, probably, you know, I mean, we know there's not. But here's, here's where he starts to address it to maybe a difference in the physiology of the, the fruit fly, but I go back to kind of plasticity. And if, if your normal programmed evolutionary behavior is what it is, 
And then biologically, you've adapted to that different kind of food substrate, especially since you're literally looking at the lifespan. You know, a day in the life of a fruit fly is like a decade for you. And so you're seeing metabolic adaptation occur probably much, much faster. So pure conjecture, but anything in this realm would be conjecture. I think you can just look at two, three, four different uh, things, but I don't think that's the main part of the study anyway. The fact that lower glycogen levels, because the standard diet over time, over seven to nine days, they got almost as low, you know, they, they had the same activity anyway. So I just don't think that was a huge variable, but, uh, here's one of my points about this, just kind of either I'm misinterpreting this, or this is one of those kind of student things where he just didn't have a great grasp are finding that a low carb and high protein diet causes a reduction in metabolic rate conflicts with previous studies of humans are finding that a low carb diet causes a reduction in metabolic rate it does cause a reduction. And you even discussed that earlier. This may have just been a typo, first of all. Um, but anyway, it was just one of those things that I wanted to point out to say, this is why you need to really read this stuff carefully. Um, but we also know, as we just discussed in the data, his data actually show the correct interpretation, but then he didn't hear. And I, I really just wanna say that it may be, he just used the wrong word there. Um, and like, like does instead of does not. But anyway, we know that you need a minimum level of protein and then carbs take over the rest of that metabolic uh, response and lean body mass retention response. So this is what he was showing too, which was a little bit questionable, uh, where he said there's really no decrease in activity for a low carb, you know, for the, for the flies on low carbs. Um, it kind of shows that there is just not all the time. So when you look at this, the low carb is blue. So these are all activity like flight patterns and walking patterns and, or just general activity expenditure. So the blue is the low carb and you see a lot of them kind of mirroring each other. So they're not that different. I get it, but you definitely see in the red, which is the standard diet, you actually see more increases. The, you know, if, if you really looked at the, the stats there, you would see, I think that there, you know, especially in that bottom one, I don't know if these are just different, I think these were just different days. Yeah, day one through nine. So by day nine on this diet, I mean, look at that, that's a massive inversion. So I think you definitely see the higher carb diet, you know, increasing activity. Uh, it just took a little longer to get there. Um, but it did. So again, I'd like, I just know why he, he was pretty dogmatic with that conclusion, which appears to be contrary to his own data. Um, same thing here, mean glycogen levels. Um, you know, there, again, it comes into play that, that biological plasticity where your body just adapts, but there still is clearly one better way of eating. So here's the last point. Um, they were looking again, reactive oxygen species, which are free radicals, which is a huge part of aging. We predicted lifespan would be inversely correlated with mitochondrial efficiency and uh, ROS production as expected survival rates decreased with greater protein and, and with increased carb. Um, 
oh, wait a sec. Oh, and, and increased with, with carbohydrate intake. So longevity increased. But contrary to our expectations, there was no relationship between lifespan and mitochondrial ROS production. So this, this is one thing I'm gonna just kind of push to the side because I don't think there's enough done in this study to make that point too relevant. What's more relevant instead of do free radicals directly cause death or increased aging? Let's put that to the side. Uh, I just don't think they had enough focus on that to make a conclusion. The, all of their study was on protein versus carbs, protein versus carbs, protein versus carbs. So look at this. This is the lifespan of these flies. That red line, so you see them dying sooner. This is just like, this is the line of death. That's the high protein diet. Everybody's dying sooner, more quickly. Like there is absolutely no, no way to confuse that in the data. And then the higher the carbs go, the blue line, the dark blue kind of purpley line over here is way out over here with increased longevity. So just like those Okinawan studies with less than 10% of calories coming from protein, less than 10% of calories coming from fat, and yet the majority of your food coming from carbs, not that you're overeating, you don't see a lot of people who are overweight in Okinawa, but they're eating rice, they're eating fruit, they're eating vegetables, they're eating healthy foods, they're not eating like ding-dongs and Twinkies all day long, you know, look, look at that extra longevity. So that's, that's a really big part of the study. If, if you want it to be, if you're concerned about your overall health and longevity. So the goal of this research uh, was to examine, uh, we, we've talked about this so much. We don't need to probably go over that. I want to give you guys a chance for some questions here. Um, let me, one more thing. So anyway, yeah, let me, let me just bring you guys in for questions if you have any, because I would love to hear your thoughts on this because it's such a weird study. We have never talked about the life of a fruit fly in the Flexible Dieting Institute, and now we know. Any, any thoughts or questions? I mesmerized you guys so much with fruit flies, you're just done. Kevin, nothing? No nursing practice correlations to fruit flies? Not really. It really just further validates what we already know with human physiology in terms of pro protein and carbo carbohydrate relation and its effects on metabolism. Um, it's interesting uh, just, just to see the correlations and similarities, but I can't say it's anything new it just adds more to the body of literature and consensus of of the benefits of carbohydrates assuming protein needs are met first exactly and, and where i want to go next in this series and i had a couple other studies that i wanted to get to i just did not at first glance realize this thing was 150 pages um i really want to go through more detail like this this compared a very specific a to b subset of protein and carb ratios but from our overview last time in part one to this time, now I think we can create some salience in some more subtle changes in macronutrient distribution. You know, that's going to be the first leg of this series, which is for diet efficacy. Let's nail down first macronutrients. Um, so appreciate that, Andrew.
but yeah, it's, uh, you know, today was just kind of like protein versus carbs. And we know again, minimum level of protein. If we're not up to a minimum, then we should probably get there. Definitely don't need a maximum. And it's so unique to me in that when I started my career, everybody, like if you looked at my demographic, if, if, if you were anybody trying to gain lean body mass, compete performatively or in physique sport at high levels, you would just eat 250, 300 grams of protein a day, like 40, 45% of your calories coming from protein. And ironically, it just, it didn't seem that difficult. You just had like a six ounce chicken breast six times a day, or, you know, 40 to 50 gram protein, you know, MRPs and you just did it. And I mean, I remember some of the health effects, like, you, you know, like my dentist would even say like, I can tell when you change your diet, when you're eating more protein or less, because you have twice as much calculus buildup on your teeth. Like you are excreting so much extra calcium in your body that it's like your teeth are twice as bad. Um, and of course we know kidney and, you know, liver type stress and so forth is real. And just the fact that we just simply don't need that. So now when I see clients come from coaches and I see almost universally, everybody's protein intakes are about half of that. I'm like, wow, like, that's great. It only took one generation for people to get out of that mode. And now we have more room for pliability of the macronutrients, you know, in, in a more useful preferential way. Kevin's looking at his watch. That means it must be time to go. He's, he's another faculty meeting. Sorry. The gatekeeper. All right, man. Well, I will let you go and I'll let everybody else go. If you have any questions, let me know through the app or anything else. Uh, it's all right. It's good, Kevin. It's keep me from, from talking all afternoon. Uh, appreciate you guys being here, especially you guys who watch this on the playback, but this is going to be a fun series. We're, this is going to go deep. So I think we're going to find some really cool stuff and, and have a, a pretty cool database of, of stuff here in the next uh, couple months. So you guys have a good weekend. And clients and coaches of FDI, I will see you next week, Monday, Wednesday, et cetera. Research review plan for next Friday. See you guys.